Hey y'all, today we're going to talk about the Underground Railroad, slave escape, and how black people helped each other get to freedom. Even in its day, there was a ton of mythology and legend around how the Underground Railroad worked, and that continues to today. So today we're going to peel back some of that myth and look at the truth of the Underground Railroad. My guest today is Professor Richard Blackett, who is retired from Vanderbilt University and who's written a lot about this, but the book we're specifically talking about is Making Freedom, The Underground Railroad and the Politics of Slavery. We're going to start a place that I feel like we end up a lot on this show, which is the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which being a law about fugitive slaves makes it pretty important to the story of the Underground Railroad. So let's start there. The Fugitive Slave Law attempted to close gaps in the existing Fugitive Slave Law which was passed as early as 1793. Many efforts were made since the passage of the first law in 1793 to tighten up what members of the slaveholding political class thought were weak spots in the law, particularly how it was enforced. And over the years, they attempted to do that, but couldn't muster the political muscle to pass it through Congress. They never managed to get both houses to endorse the passage of a more rigid, a stronger fugitive slave law until 1850. And what changed the political calculus is something that had absolutely nothing to do with runaway slaves. It had to do with how do you divide the spoils after the Mexican-American War? The United States acquired huge tracts of land at the end of the victory of that war. And then the dispute arose over how do you divide this in order to maintain the equilibrium between the North and the South, the political equilibrium. And what came out of that effort to find that balance in order to make it more palatable to both sides of the dispute, one of the pillars of the Compromise of 1850 was the abolition of the slave trade in Washington, D.C. That had become an embarrassment to the United States because their capital was a hotbed of people being sold. And it just did not look good. So that was one feature of the Compromise of 1850. And the other was this more draconian fugitive slave law that's supposed to tighten up the loopholes and make it possible to enforce the return of people who ran away. But the law was draconian. It violated all kind of legal and constitutional principles. There was to be no habeas corpus, for instance. The person accused of being a fugitive slave could not testify in their own behalf. What that meant potentially is that free blacks, people who were always free or had been freed, could be picked up and they would have the burden of proof would be on them, but then they could not testify. So if I'm a free black, I'm accused of being a fugitive slave. I go before a magistrate. I can't testify in my own behalf. So those were two of the features that violated all kind of constitutional legal precedent and traditions. Black and white abolitionists were adamantly opposed to this law because it violated other kinds of legal precedents and traditions and and their own political interests. For instance, if a policeman, if a sheriff said to an individual, you need to help me 
capture this person because I think he's a fugitive slave. And the person declines, under the terms of the law, that person would be fine. So what you have in, in effect done, you have made the residents of northern states potential slave catchers. And people were not happy about that, even if they were not opposed fundamentally to slavery. That forced them to do something they did not want to do, and that created a problem. There were other draconian aspects of this. You could be charged huge sums of money if you aided and abetted a fugitive slave to escape. The people who arbitrated these issues, if they freed somebody or if they ruled against the slaveholder who claimed somebody, they got $5. If they ruled in favor of the slaveholder, they got $10. So for many people, <laughs> you didn't have to be a genius to see this as a sort of bribe. So there were many aspects of this law that people found repulsive. And as a consequence, even before the passage of the law, because it took a long time to work its way through the House and Senate from January 1850, roughly, until the law was signed into to effect in September 1850, it took a long time. So people were prepared. They were determined to openly oppose its enforcement. And that created a huge political crisis in the country. This opposition is kind of how you rope in the Underground Railroad. Yeah, that's part of it was part of the Underground. I mean, the Underground Railroad had a history long before 1850, but it made activities on the Underground Railroad more significant. It increased involvement in the Underground Railroad. But lots of the people, many of those who escaped, weren't involved or weren't aided by the Underground Railroad. And that is a problem that we have as historians because we can't determine how many exactly. We have a rough idea of those people who went through the channels of the Underground Railroad. But by and large, people escaped without touching base with any member of the Underground Railroad. They did it themselves. And those people we know very little about or next to nothing about. The activities on the Underground Railroad increased significantly in the decade of the 1850s, partly in opposition to the enforcement of the law, but also because in one of those curious twists of historical fate, more people escaped after the fugitive slave law than before. Wow. You could argue, but I won't, that the fugitive law inspired people to escape. The increase in the number of escapes in the 1850s and the attempts to enforce this new law created greater political tensions within the country, especially in areas where there was a clash between those who were enforcing the law and those who were trying to escape. I love talking about like stories of individual people. So can you give us an example of the tension that was caused from the increase in enforcement and the increase in opposition to the fugitive slave law? Invariably, the Underground Railroad begins its operation after the enslaved have escaped. But increasingly in the 1850s, people opposed to slavery began to go into slaveholding territory to try and encourage people to escape. Because in escaping and the publicity surrounded it, you increase the political crisis for the slave system. 
So an example that really isn't part of the Underground Railroad until they get to Philadelphia. The most dramatic, I think, escape in the antebellum period, and that's William and Ellen Craft. The Crafts were an enslaved couple in Macon, Georgia. She looked white. Ellen, as you could expect, a product of slaveholders coupling with their enslaved women. They met in Macon, where they were both enslaved, and started making plans to escape. And they escaped in December 1848. She dressed as a man, as a slaveholder, traveling to Philadelphia for medical reasons, was the story that they concocted. She was supposedly an invalid because of this illness. So they bandaged her face so she wouldn't speak too much and betray her dialect because no slaveholder would be talking in her accent. They put her arm in a sling so that she won't be able to sign any of the documents that are necessary for slaveholders to take their slaves across state lines. And they set off first by train from Macon, went to Savannah, and then by a series of boats and coaches, they crossed into Philadelphia four days after they left Macon. Of what were some very, very shaky times when they could have been caught. So luck was also on their side. And when they got to Philadelphia, that's where the Underground Railroad sort of kicked in. And they were taken to a member of the Underground Railroad outside of the city where they were protected and kept safe before they ultimately decided that Philadelphia and Philadelphia area was not a safe place to settle. And they went to Boston. In Boston, they became, after a while, she became a well-known seamstress. He was a carpenter. And they became involved in the abolitionist movement. They became features on the abolitionist lecture circuit because, as you can imagine, their escape is very dramatic. Most probably as dramatic, although not as, <laughs> in, a, in a way, as dangerous as Henry Box Brown, who got himself put in a box and sent to Philadelphia from Virginia. But this is a much longer distance that this couple had traveled. Therefore, abolitionists took them under their wing, and they became a feature of the abolitionist lecture circuit, in which they replayed and reenacted and told their stories of their dramatic escape. So that by the passage of the 1850 Fugitives Law in September, their slaveholder, was ready, and the system was in place to allow him to retake. So he sent two slave catchers from Georgia who knew them, who got to Boston, tried to reconnect with the crafts. It did not work. The Boston Black community and abolitionists rallied around them. They separated them. They sent Ellen to a hiding place somewhere and William to another. William was hiding in a house in which they placed gunpowder under the house to blow it up if the slave catchers come. The Black community rallied around them. They intimidated the slave catchers in the streets of Boston. And in the end, after a number of court cases in which they were sued for a number of crazy things like having a gun or spitting in the street, the slave catchers fled Boston 
without the things that they had come for. But this was a dangerous situation because the President of the United States had made it absolutely clear that that kind of resistance to the law would not be tolerated, and he would send the military in if necessary to get people, at which point the Crafts and their supporters decided that Boston wasn't safe, and they fled Boston in what I suppose is a continuation of the Underground Railroad, and they relocated to England. They would not return to the United States until 1869. And in that period, they attended school and were educated. All their children were born in England. They started and continued a business in London. In fact, just in September of last year, a historical marker was put up outside their home in London to commemorate where they lived and their history in the anti-slavery movement. And the Crafts returned in 1869, and they decided to buy a plantation in Georgia. So they went back to the place where they were enslaved, bought this big plantation, and tried to run it on a cooperative basis. The local planters just went after them. Their efforts didn't last very long. Ellen dies first, and William then moves to Charleston, where one of his daughters lived, and he died there. So that was a a really dramatic story that went the entire circle of life. And that's why I've always found it very curious from people who escaped from Georgia and would return ultimately to Georgia in an effort to do something in the period after the Civil War. But theirs was by far the most dramatic escape, particularly in the case of Ellen. Because if you were a white person attending a lecture or a meeting in which they are there, you must ask yourself the question, she looks like me. So for Ellen, especially when they were in England, they put on this dramatic presentation during lectures. At the end of their lectures, Ellen, who was always seated in far rear of the hall of the room, would be asked to come to the stage, and she would slowly walk down the aisle so that people could see that this white woman was a slave. And they asked the question, and you you read local newspapers, and they are totally intrigued by this idea that a system is so fixated on race. That is by far the most dramatic story, I think, and there are countless others that occurred in the period after 1850. There are a lot of things you said that I like want to zoom in on. Let's start with the system of people coming from the North to help free slaves. that There was a whole system of like suspicion of any Northerners coming South because there was this idea that they were probably encouraging slaves to escape. Part of the problem also is they're using the system of trade that is in existence between the two sections of the society. The trade of the country relies on the mobility of people across sections. That is how it prospered. Those opposed to slavery are are now sort of using that system in order to get into the the southern states, the slaveholding states, and potentially subvert the system. And that, as you can imagine, creates a kind of paranoia among slaveholders. So any outsider becomes a potential abolitionist who is coming in to interfere. And there is evidence 
from some cases as a failure where people were captured. Going back as early as the middle of the 1830s, in which people were captured and flogged and punished and imprisoned. It's not happening on a regular basis, but it is regular enough to cause concern among those people who are eager to protect their property. They came in under cover of trade. They came in under cover of selling Bibles and other religious tracts. They came in in all different sort of guises. It is hard for a system to police that kind of activity. Yeah, there's a part in your book about the paranoia you talked about and surveillance to the point that they had to like check out boats before they left to make sure that there was no one stowed away on there and captains, if there was a stowaway on their boat, would be fined a whole lot. People stored away as well, particularly, for instance, after Box Brown escaped from Virginia. Any large box crate became instantly suspicious. And there were instances that the suspicion was well-grounded because there were people in a person inside the box. That's one of the curious things about doing this history is that you get to know how it operates and what is happening by the failures rather than the successes. For every box brown, there were others, many others, who escaped that we don't know about. Box brown is unusual because they trumpeted that all over the world. They shouted it from the rooftops as they did when William and Ellen Crafts escaped. And many Blacks, particularly people like Frederick Douglass, said to his abolitionist colleagues, listen, you need to keep this quiet because you're only alerting the slaveholders to forms of escape. On the other hand, Douglas has to recognize that you win invaluable political points by making this apparent and making this public so the world would know what it is is going on. It raises questions about the slave system. Uh, but on the other hand, it alerts the slaveholders to possible ways of escape. Those escaping and those who are supporting them have to come up with more ingenious ways of escaping that get around the restrictions imposed by the system. And that is what makes many of these stories so interesting. The ingenuity of oppressed people seeking freedom. It is an amazing story. Your book is full of amazing stories. Another thing that your book talks about, free Black people in the South were also heavily surveilled just for being there. That's pretty obvious because free Blacks in the middle of a slave system is a poke in the eye of the slave system. It's a contradiction because the slaves are Black. The idea of a Black person being not a slave is just doesn't seem right. Many in the system also saw them as symbols that slaves could aspire to. Many of these southern states created laws and regulations that attempted to restrict the activities of their free Black population and made of them a deeply suspicious group of people who were always willing and eager to help people to escape. There's the case of the Reverend Green in Maryland, whose son was a slave and whose son escaped, something aided by Harriet Tubman, but I'm not certain of that. But he escaped to Canada. And the Reverend Green, who was free, traveled to Canada to see his son. And on his return, the folks locally got very suspicious of it. Ultimately, they raided his home. 
because slaves kept escaping and passing close to his house. <laughs> so, and the authorities put two and two together and got four. And they said, okay, Green, you, you are involved in all of this. So they raided his house. They found maps with routes of his, potential routes of escape. They found letters from his son in Canada saying, hey, dad, slaves are about to leave. You should be looking after them. But they couldn't tie the reverend to the particular case that they were investigating. But they got him anyway, because when they raided his house, they found a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and they put him away for 10 years for having a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Anytime you see people burning books, you know there's a reason why they're burning books. They are scared as hell about what books can do to people who are reading them. So Green spent most of the, the rest of the years before the war broke out in a state penitentiary. So that's another one of those stories where free Blacks in the South become increasingly in the decade of the 1850s, become a real soft spot as far as the slaveholders are concerned. And they had to do something about them, even if they weren't doing anything to aid slaves to escape. And then, of course, there were slaves who aided others to escape and yet chose to remain behind. So when you look at the Underground Railroad, you have to bring into view all activities happening at the point of departure, the journey out of that point to the place where there is a confrontation potentially between those who are protecting the escapee and those who are trying to recapture them, and ultimately where they may settle. That makes the Underground Railroad a very interesting story that people love. And they love it for reasons that I am not sure they understand what it stood for. Many years ago, I gave a talk to a group of people in the eastern part of Tennessee. And the folks in the room were very, very enamored of the Underground Railroad. They thought it was a great thing. So I asked them at the end of the lecture, I got a little bit tired of the very rosy picture that was being painted. I said, you know, the purpose of the Underground Railroad was to destroy one of the fundamental institutions of American society. So then I, I stuck the knife in. I said, you know, I'm sure lots of you here grew up in the 1950s. Would you have joined the Communist Party? And they all sort of cringed. They all sort of drew back. And I say, you know, the purpose of the Communist Party is similar to the purpose of the Underground Railroad. It's to destroy one of the foundations of the society. At that point, they, they, <laughs> they didn't like me anymore. They wanted the conversation to end. I suppose I was unfair to do that to them, but I got a little bit impatient with the, the rosy picture that they had of what was going on. So free Black communities in the North were very important to the workings of the Underground Railroad. Because after you got North, when people came to like look for fugitive slaves, Black communities were very essential to protecting them, to advocating for them whenever they stood trial. And just by sheer numbers and force, trying to protect and advocate for each other. Black communities were the safe space within which people could hide. It's a space that became protected, free zone, 
And in many instances, local sheriffs knew better than to go in there. There are certain parts that they said, no, no, no. In fact, when the slave catchers came looking for the crafts in Boston, the first thing the sheriff said is, I'm not going in there. You need to come up with a document that tells me I have to go in there before I go in. They also were on hand as witnesses in hearings. They created some fabulous stories, most of them totally unrealistic and legally impermissible. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't buy their argument for days because you could see a pattern to it. Uh, one of the things that they invariably claim is that the person who was being accused of, of being a fugitive slave had been living with me since before the date he's supposed to have escaped. So that was one of their arguments. Sometimes it worked. Most times it didn't. They also, particularly women, tried to occupy the commissioner's rooms where these hearings were happening, to crowd them, to make the person uncomfortable. They also demonstrated outside. So while their white colleagues were arguing cases, they would use their means, whatever means at their disposal, to grab somebody and take them out of the courthouse and spirited them away. They are the foot soldiers of the Underground Railroad, the people who really mattered. In that way, the Black community is critical to an understanding of the Underground Railroad. It wasn't always peaceful. There's a story in your book where someone like set the prison on fire. Wherever the person was being held, they like set it on fire to get the guy out. Yeah, that was Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Because in the 1850s, there were no federal prisons. So a slaveholder who has won a case, say the commissioner rules in his favor, at four o'clock in the afternoon, after the last train has left town, where does he stay with his newly reacquired property? In the case of Harrisburg, they'd stayed in a hotel and the, <laughs> and the local folks set it on fire. Everybody escaped. The point is, it sent a message. And under Pennsylvania state law at that point, anyone accused of being a fugitive slave about to be sent back couldn't be housed in a Pennsylvania prison. In the Harrisburg case, there was nowhere to go. So they simply had to go and shack up in a hotel. <laughs> and it got very warm that evening. That's just one of the more dramatic events that take place in this period. There were other kinds of ways that people opposed the enforcement of the law. That is a constant trouble. Under the law, they could not appeal a ruling. A commissioner's ruling was final. So if the commissioner said, go back, you can't appeal to a higher court. So the, you had no alternative but to come up with some kind of ways to get around the return of the person. So all of these, as you can imagine, creates huge political tensions in the country. Other things are going on that are very important as well. But this is one that is a constant throughout the 1850s. Ooh. I want to talk about the role of writing in The Escape of Slaves. You mentioned in one of the earlier stories, communication through letters between the North and the South, and even how one of the ways to control slave movement was through forcing them to have passes, but those could be forged. The passes were a way of controlling movement, or when movement is permitted, it is limited. You can go for a day to see Fred and you have to come back by a certain time. 
and you can carry that pass because if anybody stops you in the road, any slave catcher or local police, you can take it out and say, here's my pass. It didn't take into effect that there were people, many of them free black, and also some slaves who could write and therefore could write their own pass. So what was a restrictive mechanism to enforce the system becomes a kind of passport to freedom because people could show their pass and say, I'm going to someplace further in order to get away and put some distance between themselves and their masters. That is by far, I think, the most common and most significant way of doing it. So you talked about how the crafts went to England. And because England had abolished slavery, another escape route was to go to the Caribbean, where there wasn't slavery. You have this whole case in your book about a fugitive in Jamaica who stowed away on a boat. And I did want to talk about that escape route. That's even more difficult to come up with any reasonable approximation of how many went that way. But if you look at domestic slave trade in the sea, particularly from places like Virginia and Maryland to New Orleans, which is one of the big slave markets, those ships have to pass pretty close to the Bahamas. And if you're in September and October and your ship is near the Bahamas, you could be running into hurricanes. Your ship could be blown off course onto the Bahamas. And the Bahamians say, we don't have slavery here, so we're not releasing your slaves. It happened a number of times. So that is one of the sore points in the relationship between the United States and Britain. Uh, and the case you talk about in Jamaica, we only get more information about that because that actually went to trial. There's some transcript. And there was an American counsel in Jamaica who was a hard-boiled pro-slavery man, a Virginian, who fought tooth and nail to get this person returned to slavery, and who saw this as a kind of an alliance between the British and Black Americans to undermine the slave system. I think he'd, he'd gone off the rails a little bit. The point that he had is that this sort of escape route creates all kinds of problems. If you recall, when the ship got to, to Savannah Lamar in Jamaica, the captain tried to keep the, the person on board because he was concerned for his, his own skin when he got back home to America for actually allowing a slave to escape. The people went to the ship, the Jamaicans, and took him off. And again, women were a critical part of the thing. The reports you see <laughs> of these women on the docks in the port city determined to know what was going on in the ship and why that man was on it. And they were not kind to the captain. They had some pretty <laughs> harsh words for the captain. That's another dimension of the destination involved in the Underground Railroad. Canada, of course, is the, is the most significant. So any place where there was free soil, people ran to it. Some folks ran to Indian nations in the West. But that coastal region passing close to Bahamas was another spot at which all these things came unraveled. One of the big things I just want to emphasize again, something you said at the very beginning, as much emphasis as both people back then and we continue to now put on the Underground Railroad, a whole lot of slaves escaped without any kind of help. They just ran off. The Underground Railroad 
was not the story behind every slave escape. There's another section in your book where you talk about large groups of people would escape from states right on the border between freedom and slavery. They were called stampedes, which is an interesting word. To some extent, the issue is if people just scattered in large numbers, it's much more difficult to catch them than tracking one individual or two traveling together. Kind of an abrupt ending, I know. So here's the normal ending stuff. I know a lot of you listen on Apple Podcasts, so please drop a review on there and keep telling people about this show. Word of mouth is really helping. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>